Good evening. How are we doing? If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. John 18 is where we're going to be tonight. John chapter 18. As you turn to John 18, I want you to know something tonight. I want you to know that tonight I'm coming here with a very simple and a very clear and a very important message for you. I want you to know tonight that what I'm about to say is one of those messages that's actually going to require something. See, there's certain things I can get up here and say that don't actually require anything of you at all. Like if I got up here and shared an opinion, it wouldn't actually require anything. Like if I stood here on this stage and said an eminently true thing like the best breakfast cereal in the world is Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries, right? 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 Like, no, 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 listen, you have the right to have a bad opinion, but it's still an opinion. Or if I got up here and I said that the best fast food French fries are unquestionably McDonald's French fries. Okay. Now I got you with me, right? But, but here's the deal. Me, 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 sharing, me sharing that opinion requires nothing of you. See, opinions require nothing of you. There's facts I could tell you, like right now, currently, at Hume Lake Christian Camps, outside, it is 67 degrees Fahrenheit. You would go, all right, cool. That doesn't require anything of you, right? Like, I could even tell you something that would excite some of you. Like, I've learned that some of you actually went to my high school. I went to California High School. Anyone here? California High School? All right, like six of you. So, so, so here's the deal. That does nothing for your life, Right? doesn't change you, doesn't move you, doesn't require anything of you. See, if I share an opinion, it doesn't require anything of you. If I just give you a random fact, it requires nothing of you. But there are certain messages in life that do require a response. You don't have to respond in a particular way, but it does require a response. Like if someone came running in the doors right now and said, everyone, you need to get out of the chapel, it's on fire, right? If that was said, that would require a response. And your response could be, get up, run out of the chapel, right? Or your response could be, I'll take my chances. We'll see. But either way, you have responded. Can I get a little more serious? Dear friend of mine, two months ago, lets us all know that she's been diagnosed with cancer. And the doctors tell her, you have a kind of cancer that is so aggressive that if we do not go with an aggressive treatment now, right now, in this moment, it is going to be painful. You are going to suffer, but it is your only chance. That is the type of message that demands a response. She can do it. She cannot do the treatment. But either way, she has responded. See, tonight I'm not here to give you an opinion. I'm not here to tell you some random facts. I'm here tonight to declare a message that demands a response. And every single one of you will walk out of the chapel responding in one way or the other tonight. There is no one in this room who will hear this message and not respond in one way or the other. Even if tonight you decide I want nothing to do with your message, nothing to do with your Jesus, nothing to do with what you have to say tonight, you have in fact decided and you have in fact responded. See, tonight I want to tell you the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight, I want you to understand what Christ has done on your behalf, that you might be rescued and saved from your sins, made right with your Father in heaven, and given a home with him forevermore. This is the message I want to declare, and you must respond to it. See, I remember when I was in eighth grade. I was in eighth grade, and like I said earlier, I grew up in this Christian home where the choice was always, which church do you want to go to? 
And so all throughout my life, I'd choose which church I wanted to go to. But then I told you the turning point in my faith was when the question wasn't which church will you go to, but rather, what are you going to do with Jesus? And all growing up, I would have said I'm a Christian. I knew Bible facts. I could have told you all the things about God. But when I look back on my life in that moment, I would tell you I didn't actually know God. See, what happened was this. I was at a camp just like this in the summer going into my eighth grade year. We were sitting around a campfire. It was a lot smaller than this room. But we're sitting around a campfire on the last night of camp, and the pastor gets up to give a sermon. And I've heard many of these sermons before. I'd heard sermon after sermon after sermon, but here he's preaching out of Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. And he says that you can offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, that you can be the type of person who lays your life down, and Christ will raise you up. And for some reason, the person who thought he was a Christian, who thought he knew Jesus, who thought he had it all figured out, felt himself when that pastor gave an invitation to who wants to respond to this for the first time, being drawn forward in a way I didn't think I would have. See, in that night I realized that I knew a lot of things about Jesus, but I didn't actually know Jesus. See, that night, the summer before my eighth grade year, I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I called upon the name of the Lord. I responded to the invitation. And tonight, like I said, I'm going to give you the type of message that demands a response. You will respond tonight, one way or the other. Here's what I want you to see about my Jesus. The story goes on this way. You'll be in chapter 18. I want to just recap up until this point. Again, Jesus has been doing miracles and making claims about himself. In John chapter 10, Jesus is going to declare himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He gives this metaphor that Jesus' job is to be pulling together a flock of people who are under his care. In John chapter 11, Jesus does a miracle. And this miracle is that he walks up to a dead man and makes him alive again. That Jesus actually has the power to walk up to a corpse and raise him from the grave, which is the same power he will exercise on any of us who know him and trust him and love him on the last day when he returns. In John chapter 12, Jesus is anointed at Bethany with an expensive perfume poured all over his feet. This extravagant act of worship done for the Messiah echoes throughout the ages. And any of you who know and love Jesus and raise your hands, fall on your face, worship your Jesus, are continuing in her legacy. In that same chapter of 12, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, declaring himself to be the Messiah King of Israel. Again, Jesus is not just an advisor for us. He is the king. He is in charge. John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He shows them the great extent of his love by showing his humility, not his power. And then Jesus commands his disciples to love as he has loved them. Again, you can stay in John chapter 18, but I want to read you a few verses out of John 14. It says this, Jesus is speaking. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have not have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the place, you know the way to the place where I am going. Like in other words, here's what Jesus is saying. You want a home with God forevermore? You want to find a place where you're actually home, where you feel safe, not just now, but for all of eternity? Jesus is creating that place. He's inviting you into it. Verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And then verse 6, Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says this sentence, and throughout all of human history, since this moment, 
this sentence has driven people crazy. People have gone absolutely nuts over this statement because if you listen to this closely, if you read what Jesus is actually saying, here's what Jesus is saying, the only way to get to God is through me. Every other religion, every other system, every other person, every other Messiah won't get you to the Father, only I will. And this drives people crazy. Maybe it drives some of you crazy. And the reason it drives people crazy it's because people fundamentally misunderstand what our God is actually like. The reason this statement drives people crazy is because we fundamentally misunderstand who our God is. See, here's the problem. If our God was just an impersonal force, like you know how in Star Wars there's the force? The force isn't really a person, it's just kind of this energy field all around us. If our God was like the force, this would be a narrow, bigoted, ridiculous statement. Because who's to say Jesus is the only one who can tap you into this energy? Who's to say only Jesus can get you in touch with this force? Can't all these other messiahs, can't all these other religions get you in touch? This would be incredibly narrow. But here's what you need to know about our God. Our God is not an it. Our God is a he. Our God is not a force. Our God is a person. He is a personal God. He exists in relationship with us. And here's what you need to know about relationships. If you want to get to know someone and be in relationship with them, you must only do it on their terms. You never get to do it on your terms. I'll say that again. If you want to be in relationship with someone, it only happens on their terms. It never happens on your terms. Let me put it to you this way. I want you to imagine as camp is wrapping up, you bump into someone else from the, your church, uh, and she says to you, hey, listen, um, it's been really fun getting to know you this week. I would actually love to, like, talk again after, you know, like, 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 be friends after camp. I would really love to get to know you. So imagine someone walks up to you, says, I would really love to get to know you, and you said, that sounds great. Why don't we get together for coffee next Tuesday before youth group? Next Tuesday, we can get together, we can do dinner, we can do coffee, we can talk, and then she looks you in the eye and says, absolutely not, we will talk right now. And you're like, whoa, whoa, that's a little aggressive. She's like, I don't care if it's aggressive. Right here, in the spot, tell me everything about your life, go. And you're like, I don't know, I'm kind of tired, I want to go off to bed. And she goes, you ain't going anywhere. You are telling me your whole life. She starts to get really aggressive. What would happen? In that moment, she has fundamentally misunderstood how relationships work, right? Because you don't get to know me on your terms. You only get to know me on my terms. And if I say we're having coffee next Tuesday, you can't force the discussion now. Or let me put it this way. I want you to imagine you wanted to get to know a movie star. Let's take a random movie star. Let's take Chris Pratt, okay? Here's a guy, Chris, uh, Chris Pratt, okay. So, so here's what I want you to know. You, some of you are cheering because you know things about Chris Pratt. You know things. I don't know a lot of things about him. I know his name. I, that's all I know. But you know things about him, and here's why. You can know all kinds of things about a person on your terms. But here's my guess, and this I'm just super wrong. Someone might be like, actually, he's my uncle, right? But like, here's my guess. None of you know him personally. And you know why you don't know him personally? Because you can know things about someone on your terms. You only get to know someone else on their terms. And the God of the universe says, you can get to know me if you want, but only on my terms. And the terms that the God of the universe uses that you could get to know him is that you would get to know his son, Jesus. You don't get a vote. You don't get to set the terms. You don't get to decide that's unfair or too narrow or too bigoted or too anything. 
God gets to set the terms on how you get to know him. And the terms that the God of the universe, the Father in heaven, has set out for you is that in order to know me, you must first know my son. That is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you desperately to know the Father in heaven who created you. I want you to know the God of all creation. But in order to do that, you first must know the Son. You must know Jesus. Jesus goes on to teach in John chapter 15 and 16 and 17. He gives this discourse, this final discourse, this final teaching to his people. And we'll return to some of that tomorrow night. But in this discourse, he promises the Holy Spirit for them. Like in other words, he promises that I'm going to go up to heaven, but my Holy Spirit is going to come into you, animating you that the God of the universe will live inside of your bones. He tells us the purpose of the Holy Spirit, that the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into all truth, that the Holy Spirit is that which takes the words of Jesus and applies them to our life. And then in John chapter 18, Jesus is having his final meal with his disciples, his final last supper. And after that last supper, he goes off to pray, and as he is praying, he is betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. He's betrayed, he's ratted out. They say, that's where Jesus is. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is denied by Peter, and Jesus is put on trial in front of the authorities. And I want you to see here what goes on in this trial. John chapter 18, if you have your Bibles with you, in verse 28, it says this. It says, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. It was now early in the morning. To avoid unceremonial cleanliness, they did not enter the place because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So the first thing you'll see here is that Jesus has been on trial all night in the middle of the night, and in that culture, that's totally illegal. Like you're not allowed to be on trial in the middle of the night, and yet no one cares because they're just trying to destroy Jesus. Verse 29, it says, So Pilate came out and asked them, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside into the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Like, look here, like, again, the main thing that is bothering people about Jesus isn't the stuff he did, it is what he was teaching, what he was saying. He was declaring that he is in charge, not the systems of this world. Verse 34, it says, is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate asked? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now there's a statement. You want to know the truth? You want to know the truth in this world? You want to walk in the truth, walk in the light? You've got to be with Jesus. Everyone who walks in the light is someone who is walking with Jesus. Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then here's what we see, verse 38. Circle this, underline it, highlight in your Bible. This is such an important verse. What is truth, reported Pilate. Here's Jesus. Jesus says, you know who I am? I'm the one who testifies to the truth. I am the light that is in the world. You want to be enlightened? You want to walk in the light? You've got to know me. You've got to know the truth. And Pilate, in all of his power, in all of his pride, in all of his arrogance, asks this question. He goes, what is truth? 
You know what Pilate is trying to say? He goes, I don't really care what's true or untrue. I don't really care what's right or wrong. I don't really care what reality and non-reality are. All I care about is the power I have to effectuate my will in this world. Pilate is filled with pride. Pilate is filled with arrogance. Can I say this out loud tonight? I think there are some of you in this room that are filled with that same pride and arrogance. Somewhere along the way, you've decided you don't even care what's true or not. Because all you want to do is what you want to do in this world. You're your own God. You're your own truth. You're your own master. No one tells you what to do. No one tells you where to go. No one tells you how to live. You're the God of your universe, and you sit upon the throne of your own world. This is what Pilate says. Who cares about truth? Truth is whatever I want it to be. Truth is in service of my power. Truth is in service of whatever I want. Pilate doesn't care whether Jesus was right or wrong. He just wants his own agenda to be advanced. And some of you, the reason you want nothing to do with God is because you know if you come to God, you'll actually have to submit to a power, an authority that is higher than your own. I want to call you out of that tonight because I want you to know that the most miserable people I have ever met are the people who are the gods of their own life. The most miserable people I have ever met are the people who give in to every impulse inside of them, who never submit themselves to anything outside of them, but rather just do everything they want to do. And if you doubt that, just think about the most selfish people in your life. Do you want to be like them? Like some of you have a selfish friend. Do you want to be like her? Some of you have selfish dads. Do you want to be like him? Because eventually when you get to the point where you say, I don't care about truth. What is truth? Right, wrong, good, bad, moral, immoral. I don't care. I just want to do me. You become a twisted up individual who only seeks their own pleasure. And that is the road and the path to misery. Again, Pilate's asked the question, what is truth? Because the truth is Pilate doesn't care about truth. Pilate cares about power, his own power, and how to advance that. Ultimately, what's going to happen is Pilate is going to get so stirred up by the crowd. He's going to be so stirred up by what they're saying. He's going to be so stirred up by his own desire for power that he's going to do something absolutely horrific to Jesus. If you have your Bibles, flip to John 19 and verse 1. It says this. It says, Pilate took Jesus. This is after he gives in to the crowd who wants Jesus to be killed, to be crucified. It says, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it upon his head. They put him in a purple robe and went up again to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Three things happened to Jesus in the text we just read here. In chapter 19 and verse 1, it says he was flogged. Now this word for flogged in the New Testament is not the beating Jesus will eventually receive that is brutal and bloody. This is more like a slight beating. It's more like he's getting smacked around and told to submit and stop being so uppity. Stop talking about the truth. Just submit to the power around you. He's flogged. Then it says the soldiers put a crown of thorns upon his head. <laughs> you ever been like, out in nature or out in your parents' garden and you like accidentally prick your finger on the thorn of a rose and you're like, ow, dang it, right? It's like bleeding. It's this tiny little thing right there in your finger and you're like, oh, that kills me. You know what they did? They took dozens of them, wrapped it around Jesus' head where the nerve endings are sensitive like you would not believe and pressed it down upon his head. The blood started to run down his eyes till it blinded him. And then finally it says Jesus was slapped in the face 
Jesus is not just physically suffering, he is being mocked, he is being belittled, he is being looked down upon. The powerful people of this world think they have Jesus and they think they can deny him and defy him. They think they can look at Jesus and smack him around because they don't want anything to do with him and some of you have done the exact same thing. Some of you somewhere along the way decided that Jesus was not worth your time, that Jesus was not going to be your master, that you could smack him around, dismiss him, think nothing of him and it's nothing new. This is what happened to our Jesus at the very beginning. And then Pilate comes out to the people and says, listen, this man's done nothing wrong. He's a nuisance, but he doesn't deserve death. And the people say, crucify him. And he says, you want us to crucify your king? And they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. In other words, the only person we submit our lives to is the most powerful man in the world. That is not Jesus. It is Caesar. And then eventually... Verse 15 of chapter 19, they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Verse 16, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. You know why Pilate hands Jesus over to death? Even though Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent? Because Pilate doesn't care about truth. Pilate doesn't care about true and false and right and wrong and good and bad and moral and immoral. He doesn't care about it at all. All he cares about himself. And I want you to know that every genocidal maniac or dictator or bully in this world ultimately comes to the same conclusion. That truth doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is my own will, my own happiness, and my own power. So Pilate hands over Jesus to be crucified. Now, now here's what I want us to know. This is the central symbol and the central picture of the Christian faith. That Jesus Christ is crucified, put upon a Roman cross, bleeds and dies for our salvation. But here's the problem. The problem is that some of you are wearing a cross around your neck. And that's not the problem. If you have a cross around your neck, that's great. But oftentimes what happens on that cross is it's just kind of clean and silver or clean and gold. Or you see even a crucifix which has Jesus upon it and Jesus is there and he's looking strong and mighty or maybe a little downcast. He's covered up so as to be modest and what we have is a sanitized, cleaned up picture of the cross. And I want you to know that the crucifixion of Jesus was nothing like that. I want you to understand, write this down. The center of our faith is a bloody, mutilated, tortured Jesus dying for the sins of this world. It's not just that Jesus was killed, it's that Jesus was slaughtered. See, when the Romans would crucify someone, their point was not just to kill them, it was to torture them as much as possible so as to intimidate no one else to stand up against them. They would begin the process not with a cross, but with a flogging. And this is not a light beating, this is the kind of flogging that actually killed some people before they even got to the cross. It is the kind of flogging where Jesus would be chained to a stone and they would take a whip and that whip would be made of leather, and at the end of that leather whip, they would have stones and bones and glass, and they would whip across the back the person who was being flogged, and it would rip open their back, and sometimes it would go around the rib cage and rip open the front and break ribs. Jesus is flogged. Jesus is beaten into an inch of his death, and that's just the beginning of his suffering. You see, that same Jesus He's going to be forced to carry the crossbeam of his cross up a hill. He's walking with it, and he's exhausted, and he's tired, and the Middle Eastern sun is beaten down on him. He's been up all night. He's sleep-deprived. He is dehydrated. He collapses. He's not able to do it by himself. They demand that someone else help carry the cross of Jesus until they get Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the skull. 
It is a place just outside of Jerusalem. It is a place where they crucified criminals. They had a criminal on his left and a criminal on his right, and they laid Jesus down onto the cross. And when we say they nailed Jesus to the cross, nail in your mind is something like this, but the truth is Jesus was nailed to the cross, not with a nail, but with more like a railroad spike. A massive nail that would not go through his hands because then it would rip through this part of the hand, but rather go through the wrist. They would nail him one side, nail him the other, nail his feet to the cross, and hoist him up on the cross. And again, every picture we have of crucifixion tries to be modest, and they try to show a little cloth around him. We have no evidence that the Romans wanted it to be modest. They wanted to humiliate this person. So you have Jesus bleeding, naked and exposed and humiliated to the world. Arms spread wide, dying and bleeding on the cross. And you might think that it is blood loss that causes people to die on the cross, but it's not so. See, on the cross, when you are hanging like this, what begins to happen is fluid fills your lungs, and you begin to suffocate on your own fluids, and the only way for you to catch a breath is to push up on the nails on your feet, (gasps) catch a breath, and then fall back down. This was our Jesus, gasping and dying for air on the cross. This is our Jesus, his lungs filling with his own fluid, suffocating and dying on the cross, exposed and naked to the world. Listen, Jesus died on the cross, but I need you to know that Jesus was slaughtered. It was bloody. It was brutal. And any attempt to sanitize that or clean that up for our own comfort is something other than the gospel that the New Testament proclaims. And that same Jesus will hang on the cross. And eventually it says he cries out and he breathes his last Jesus suffers physical agony on the cross. When we talk about crucifixion, this Latin word for crucifixion is actually the same word that we get excruciating from. Like literally, we invented the word excruciating because of the crucifix, because of the Romans and how they figured out how to brutally torture and kill people. But then I want to tell you something alarming, shocking, and something that might blow your mind a little bit. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, it says, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. Remember I said that to you yesterday? That every single one of you one day will die, and you will stand before the throne of God in judgment, and you will give an answer for your life and what you did with Jesus. Everyone is facing judgment. It says this, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. I want to say it to you this way tonight. The shocking An unbelievable truth of the cross is this. I just described Jesus' physical agony. But I want you to understand this, and you can write this down. The spiritual agony of Jesus was greater than his physical agony on the cross. The spiritual pain that Jesus absorbed was greater than any physical suffering on the cross. See, the picture of the cross is the picture of Jesus' suffering, but something much greater was happening in that moment. In that moment, the Son willingly absorbed the wrath of God for your sins and for mine. And the Father, out of his great love for us, poured the wrath of God upon his Son, and he took it in himself. It says that on the cross, Jesus didn't just die randomly. It says he died for sins. He died to absorb our punishment. It says that God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes in the wrath of God for the sins of the world so that we can say confidently that Jesus on the cross suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. 
The wrath of God is poured upon Jesus. The wrath and anger of God towards sin is poured upon Jesus. And you know why that is such great news for everyone in this room? Because that wrath of God, that cup filled with God's wrath, was emptied into Jesus and there's none left for you. This is the good news of the gospel. That in your place condemned Jesus stood. That in your place Jesus absorbs the wrath and punishment of God so that you can say confidently with Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He takes upon himself our sin. He suffers on the cross so that you might famously know that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, in that moment, it's not that Jesus felt forsaken. It's that he was. The perfect fellowship he had with the Father was cut off. He was alienated on our behalf. He absorbed the wrath of God so that he felt the separation that we deserved from the Father. And in John chapter 19 and verse 30, we read these words. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus cries out, it is finished. And the Greek word that is behind this word, it is finished, is a word that was well known in the ancient world, but it was not well known in religious or spiritual circles. The word it is finished here in the Gospel of John is the Greek word tetelestai. And tetelestai was not, again, a spiritual word or a religious word or used in connection with God at all. Tetelestai was actually the ancient equivalent of a bill being put in front of you and stamping it paid in full. When there was a bill or someone owed a debt or you owed someone for something that you purchased, there was a document that documented what you owed them. And when you finally paid it, they would stamp the word tetelestai on it. It is finished. It is done. The debt has been paid. It's over. There is nothing owed for your sin anymore. See, I want you to know that this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has paid for your sin. He has absorbed your wrath. There's no debt left for you to pay. And for you to even try to pay that de debt would be silly and ridiculous because Jesus has already paid for it. Like, let me put it to you this way. So in 2013, I got married. March 1st of 2013, I got married in Westlake Village, California. The next morning, March 2nd, 2013, my wife and I get up at the hotel and we drive down to the airport, down to Los Angeles International Airport. And we've got a flight that's going out to Maui for our honeymoon and we're gonna get on the plane, but, but here's the deal about my wife and she would not mind me sharing this. She believes this to her core. Um, there's certain people who are like, let's get to the airport just minutes before we get on the plane. And there's certain people who are like, let's get to the airport like 157 years early. Um, that way we'll never miss our flight. My wife is that second one, okay? And so she always wants to be at the airport early and we get to the airport way early and we decide, okay, we're here super early. We might as well get some lunch. So we're starting to head toward lunch, and, and here's the thing you need to know. When you get married, something happens inside of you in those first days of marriage where you don't want to refer to your spouse as anything other than my wife, right? She's not Danny, Danielle anymore. She's my wife. And so everyone I talked to, I was like, uh, can you hold the door for my wife, please? Uh, help me, my wife with her luggage, right? I'm just using it because it's this new word, and it's fun to say. And so I go up to this restaurant, and I'm like, I would like a table for two. No, I didn't say that. I said, I'd like a table for my wife and I, right? Like, I'm so excited about this. And so they get us a table, and I'm just, like, so boisterous about, like, my wife would like a Diet Coke. And, like, they're kind of annoyed with us, but, but I'm being so vocal about it. And then it comes time for our, our flight to take off, and, and I asked for the check. I was like, can we get the check, please? Um, and the waitress comes on by, and she goes, hold on. And she comes back, and she goes, hey, um, this is kind of weird, but someone in the restaurant heard you saying you just got married and referring to your wife. And they were so excited for you that they actually purchased your meal for you. 
yeah, how cool is that? So she goes, I don't actually have a check for you because your meal is already paid for. And in that moment, I kind of didn't know what to do. Because you're used to, you go and you eat a meal and then you hand over money or a credit card or something and then they run it and they bring it back. There's a whole rigmarole we go through and I didn't have to do that because the meal was already paid for. And so it would have been really silly of me to like pull out my wallet and be like, no, no, I know she already paid, but let me pay a second time. Like, why would I do that? Or why would I pull out my card and be like, no, 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 I reject that payment. I would like to pay again, right? It would be silly. It would be ridiculous. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus has already paid for your sins. You can't do anything about it. That's the good news of Jesus. You don't owe anything. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to contribute. It's not that Jesus does 99% and you do the last 1%. Jesus has paid for your sin. And this is the stunning good news of the gospel. You know why this is such good news? Because if you're here and you're a Christian, but you're going, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, but I still struggle with sin. I still fall into my addiction. I feel like I can't overcome this one sin in my life. You know what the beautiful thing is? That Jesus got a beat up real bad on the cross so you can stop beating yourself up now. You can stop. Like you can stop this thing where you just hate yourself for your sin, where you beat yourself up constantly. Like I told you, Jesus was exposed and naked on the cross. Jesus was hanging there shamed to the world so that you don't have to walk in shame anymore. You don't owe that. Jesus was cut off, experienced alienation from the Father so that you will never have to be. See, this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ pays your debt, absorbs the wrath of God, declares that the debt is paid in full. It is finished. It's not just true for someone else out there. It is true for your life. And how does that bill get paid? How do we actually receive that forgiveness in our life? If I don't have to do anything, if I don't have to earn anything, how do I receive that forgiveness? And the answer is going to be found in the next chapter. With me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 begins this very mysterious moment that we think is super normal because we know the end of the story, but it wasn't normal for them at all. See, John and Peter hear some mysterious news on the Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion. And the news they hear is that the tomb is empty. And their first assumption is that someone stole the body or something went terribly wrong. And so they run to the tomb and they rush over there. And in John chapter 20 and verse 6, it says this. It says, he saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, this is John who's writing this gospel, who had reached the tomb first, also went and saw. It went inside. He saw and believed. Do you want to receive this debt that Jesus has paid off? Do you want to receive forgiveness of sins? Do you want to become a child of God, have a home with you forevermore in heaven? You want to know the first thing you do? You do what John did. John believed. He believed. And I've talked this week that belief, knowing the truth, is not just an intellectual exercise. It's about what I actually put into play in my life. It would be like if I put a chair right here and I said, there is a chair here. I could say, I believe it will hold my weight. But the way I actually show I believe it is not by saying it in my mind or out of my mouth. It is by actually sitting in the chair. It is showing that I trust. John believed. He trusted in Jesus. To be saved, to be rescued, to receive this forgiveness of sins is not just to intellectually agree that Jesus died for sins. It is to believe and trust that he died for your sins, that you might be forgiven. They run off and Mary finds out about the tomb. She rushes to the tomb to find Jesus. And there starts to be this conversation she has with someone in the garden tomb. 
and someone's there and she starts to talk and is like, I'm looking for Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? What's going on? Mary is in this blur. She can't figure out what's going on. She's confused. She's uncertain. She doesn't know what to do. It's like a lot of you coming into camp. A lot of you came into camp totally unsure about God, unsure about Jesus, not even sure what you want. And in John chapter 20 and verse 16, it says, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Like in other words, Jesus is like Mary. Like he's trying to get her attention. He's trying to talk to her. And Mary is so distracted looking for other things, looking for Jesus, looking for truth, trying to figure out what's going on. Mary is so distracted. And this was some of you coming into camp. Your mind was all over the place. You wanted to figure out what kind of life you wanted to lead and what was going on. And I just believe for some of you that the Lord God called out your name this week. Mary, Brian, Joseph, Amy, Justin, Greg, Martha, like he called out your name. And when the Lord Jesus calls out your name, you need to do the same thing Mary did. Mary did what? Mary turned. She turned. And we talked about this this week. To turn is to repent. To turn is to be done with all these other things you're chasing after and to turn your attention back to Jesus, to metanoia, to repent, to change your mind and to turn from your sin. See, tonight I want to invite you to believe that Jesus died for your sins, not just someone else's, but yours. I want to invite you to do what Mary did. I want to invite you to turn. And I want to invite you to do what one other individual does. See, there's an individual in the book of John, chapter 20, named Thomas. And sometimes he gets a bad rap. His name is Doubting Thomas. Because Thomas goes, listen, I'm not going to believe in this Jesus unless I touch him, unless I can see him for myself and put my fingers in the wounds. And so Jesus shows up to overcome the doubt of Thomas because Jesus is not interested in just Thomas figuring it out on his own. He wants Thomas to encounter him. And Thomas does encounter him. And he cries out these words in John chapter 20, verse 28. It says, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. See, here's what happened. John believed. Mary turned. But Thomas did something that I'm going to invite some of you to do right now. Thomas called on the name of the Lord. So here's what I want you to know. Here's the invitation tonight. And it's an invitation that demands a response. In fact, you will respond. Whether you want anything to do with it or not, by the bent of hearing my voice, because you are hearing the words coming out of my mouth, you will respond in one way or the other. See, John believed. Mary turned. Thomas called. See, tonight, here's the invitation. It's a sentence found all throughout the scripture. I'll show it to you on the screen from Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. It says these words. Here's your invitation tonight. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you don't know Jesus, if you not put your faith and trust in him, If you've never had the moment where you've gone from knowing things about Jesus to knowing Jesus himself, you get to know Jesus on his own terms. And here's the terms that are laid out for you. You call on the name of the Lord, you get saved. It's a promise. It's an invitation. And I extend it to you tonight. You see that first word up there? What's that first word say? Everyone. Everyone means everyone. 
Everyone means you despite your past and your shame, despite what you did with that guy or what he did to you. Everyone means everyone, even the addicted, even the drug addicts, even the people who brought stuff to camp they shouldn't have brought to camp, even the people who use foul and vulgar language, even the people who never would be seen dead in a church, even the people who came to camp for nothing to do with Jesus, but you only came to hang out with people and hook up with girls. It's for everyone. That's the invitation. It says everyone. Everyone who calls, who cries out to God, who says, God, I need you to rescue me. Why do we cry out to God to rescue us? Because we recognize that in our sin, we deserve wrath, death, and hell. But when we cry out to Jesus, we are crying out that we need rescue. And there is only one type of person in this world that God will not rescue. The only type of person that God will not rescue is the person who doesn't think they need rescuing. The only type of person God will not save is the person that does not think they need saving that thinks they've got this thing. They don't need Jesus. They don't need to call on the name of the Lord because they've got this thing on their own. It says everyone who calls, everyone who cries out. Do I have to say a perfect prayer? No. Do I have to clean up my life first? No. You cry out to Jesus. It says everyone who calls. And then it says on the name of the Lord. In the Bible, someone's name is associated with them. It's like when we talk about our reputation being our good name. It's representing us. To call on the name of the Lord is to call upon Jesus, but I want to be deadly clear about something tonight. To call upon Jesus to rescue my sin is to call upon his name as the Lord. And that word Lord in the Bible, sometimes we say, oh, the Lord God, or we sing about the Lord, and what we're trying to say is like, he just, he's God, right? And we believe that. But here's what I want you to know. That's not what the word Lord technically means. I want you to know the word behind this word in the Greek language is the word kurios. Kurios. Kurios is the word that we get that we have behind the word Lord here. Kurios means master. Kurios means king. Kurios means they're in charge. Kurios means they call the shots. Kurios means I don't call the shots in my life anymore. Jesus does. To call upon the name of the Lord is to recognize and acknowledge that Jesus is in charge and I am not. You know, I've been in church life for many, many years. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard a pastor get up on a stage and tell everyone, ask everyone, Implore and invite everyone to make Jesus the Lord of their life. To make Jesus the Lord of their life. Can I just tell you something clearly here tonight? I'm not going to ask you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. You know why? Because you don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He already is the Lord of everything. You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He already is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. He already is sovereign over all things. He created all things. He owns all things. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no one above him. He already is. Tonight, I want to invite you to acknowledge it, to confess it, to proclaim it, and to submit to the reality that Jesus is Lord, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, then hears the words. It doesn't say you might be saved or you could be saved. It doesn't say when you call on the name of the Lord and then live a really good life and don't do bad sins and make sure to go to church a lot, then you'll be saved. It says everyone who calls on the Lord, what are those words? Will be saved. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. And anytime our God makes a promise, you can count on it because our God is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. So here's the invitation that demands a response from this room tonight. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Tonight, I want to cry out to you, I want to plead with you to put your trust in Jesus, to call on his name, that he might forgive your sins, make you his child, give you a home with him forevermore. Tonight, I want to invite many of you to call on the name of the Lord. So all across this room, would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads?
Here's why we do this. I want you to know that one day you will die and you will stand before God in judgment. And I want you to know that on that day you will stand before God and you will give an account for your life and what you did with Jesus. Your friends sitting to your right and your left will not be there with you. You will stand alone. Your mother and your father will not be there with you. Your youth pastor, your coach, your teacher will not be there. I will not be there with you. Only you will make this decision. Your eyes are closed and your head is bowed because this is a moment that you need to do business with your creator. You don't need to be looking around, thinking about what other people are thinking. This is a moment between you and your God where you need to settle in your heart whether or not you will confess that Jesus is Lord. Cry out to him for the forgiveness of your sins. Tonight, I want to invite anyone who wants to call on the name of the Lord for the first time. Say, God, I've been far from you. I've never trusted you. I've known things about you. I've just never known you. Tonight being the night. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. This prayer isn't special. It isn't some super magical prayer that you have to pray. I just want to help lead you through a prayer. If tonight's the night for you to call on the name of the Lord for the first time. Pray this. Say, God, I confess that you created me. God, I acknowledge that I have fallen short of the life that you want for me. God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I have sinned. But God, tonight, I repent of that sin. Tonight, I turn and I run to your son, Jesus. Tonight in this chapel, I call upon the name of the Lord. God, rescue me. Forgive my sins. Make me your child. Give me a home with you forevermore. God, I confess that Jesus is Lord and I give all I know of me to all I know of you by the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now with every eye closed and head bowed across this room, here's what I want to ask you to do. If tonight you prayed that prayer, if tonight's the first night you are putting your faith and trust in Jesus, I want to ask you to acknowledge that by doing a simple thing on three. Would you just open your eyes? If tonight you prayed that prayer for the first time, open your eyes and look straight at me on three. One, two, three. All across this room. There's no shame. There's time. You look straight at me. And here's what I want to say to you. If you've done this like a dozen times, if this is just like, no, I've always loved Jesus, I just do this every decision night, close your eyes, this isn't your moment. But if tonight's the night, you're saying, you know what? I've known things about Jesus, I just haven't known him. I I said I like Jesus, he's just never been my Lord. If tonight's the night, you open your eyes and you look straight at me. Because tonight's the night for you to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So for those of you in the balcony and those of you down here who are looking at me, let me ask you two questions and you can nod if this is true. Number one, Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for your salvation? If so, nod your head yes. And do you confess that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe and the king of your life from this moment forward? If so, nod your head yes. All across this room, here's what I believe. That you calling upon the name of the Lord and having clarity that Christ has forgiven your sins and that he is king of your life, that based on the authority of scripture, I am looking you in the eyes right now and telling you that it's not that you'll be saved someday, it's that you are where you sit. And that is worthy of a great celebration. That is worthy of a great God. That is worthy of an acknowledgement, not just from you and your own heart, but it is worthy of an acknowledgement from everyone who is with your church, everyone who is in this room. So tonight, some of you have made a very true decision. You've called out to the way and the truth and the light. You have done something true. And now I want to ask you who are looking at me to do something bold, something courageous. In just a moment, I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. 
not to embarrass you, not to shame you, but so you might proclaim publicly that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that you might have everyone know that tonight you joined in on the family and you are part of the family of God that lasts now and into eternity. So you have done something true. Would you do something brave? On three. Would you stand to your feet? One, two, three. All around this room, let's celebrate what God is doing, what God is up to, and who our God is. Stay standing. There's still a moment if you need to stand. If you need to stand to your feet, you do it right now. See, I want us to know tonight. I want us to know that this is what our God does. He doesn't save someone out there, he saves people in here. He doesn't save in the past, he saves in the present. He is a good God and a gracious God and all of your sin was nailed to the cross with Christ. Your debt is paid and it is finished, now and forever. So I wanna invite those of you in this room, I wanna invite everyone who knows Jesus to stand to your feet tonight. Stand with our new brothers and sisters in Christ. And I wanna introduce you to a word. There is a word found throughout the whole Bible that we use when people get saved. And that beautiful biblical word is the word hallelujah. And hallelujah means praise be to the Lord. Tonight, can anyone in this room say hallelujah? The Father has rescued and saved. Can anyone tonight say hallelujah that Jesus Christ is Lord of all? Can anyone tonight say hallelujah? The Holy Spirit of God fills this place. Can anyone tonight say hallelujah that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father? Anyone who believes that, raise a hallelujah in this place. Hallelujah! Yeah.